Hello and welcome to Le Monde Diplomatique's podcast for June 2011. My name is George Miller, and each month I bring you an in-depth interview with one of our contributors. I'm very pleased to say that my guest this month is Tony Wood, who's deputy editor of the New Left Review, and author of Chechnya, The Case for Independence. The focus of Tony's article in the latest issue is much closer to home, however. The protests sparked by the programme of cuts planned by the UK's coalition government. 2011, Tony writes in his article, could be a year of awakening in the UK. I began by asking him to sketch out the scale of the proposed cuts. Sure. I mean, broadly speaking, the um, the, the cuts were announced in, in various stages. I mean, first of all, in, in the George Osborne's first emergency budget in June, and then the full budget, or the full extent of the cuts became clear in October uh, of mm. 2010. And at that point, it became apparent that what was being contemplated was a cut of over £80 billion in all spheres of government by 2014 to 15. That's falling in various areas, but basically that would include 36 billion being cut from the public services budget and 18 billion from the welfare budget. So you can see that, that together, sort of welfare and public services account for a good sort of 50 billion out of that 80. So you can see that the, the cuts in other areas such as defense and, and health are somewhat lesser. Um, and the fact that it's being cut mainly from welfare and public services means it's above all affecting poorer households, households dependent on housing uh, benefits, uh, on unemployment benefits, essentially disproportionately targeting the less well-off in this country. Yes, and and you you point out that this comes at the same time as um, an increase in taxation, and and in particular in in VAT, going up to 20%, value-added tax going up to 20%, which is, is regressive. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the VAT actually in, in Britain until this measure was introduced was at 17.5%, which is already very high. When the global recession started in 2008, the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown actually reduced the VAT to 15% as a sort of stimulus measure for the economy. So actually what's happened is, is not just an increase in increasing VAT of 2.5%, but for most people, they've seen it very quickly rise from 15% to 20%. Hmm. So that's a sort of 5% increase in the cost of most basic necessities that people are going to buy. Uh, food is included in that and a whole number of, of essentials that people buy. And I mean, it's important to stress how regressive VAT is as a tax because obviously people think, oh, across the board, it's the same for everyone. It's mm. a fair tax. It's not a fair tax at all because if people's salaries are much lower, their expenditure on, on items of consumption is proportionately a much greater chunk of their income. So you can see that a very wealthy person mm. is going to be spending a very small fraction of their income on, on food, whereas someone who is you know, scraping the minimum wage or even unemployed is, is going to be spending a lot more of the little money they have on, on mm. the basics. And these cuts, of course, are coming at a time when, as you point out, income imbalances are high and social mobility at a, an all-time low. So that there, there is a context in which these cuts really have to be viewed, which is adding to people's frustration and anger. That's very much the case. I mean, the, the, the levels of inequality within the UK have been steadily increasing uh, since the 1980s and, and increased very much more rapidly after 1997, that is after the new Labour government took office. And this has in large part to do with the increasingly prominent role of finance in the national economy and the dwindling role of, of, uh, of industrial, mm. the industrial sector and manufacturing. And you've now got to the point where um, the richest people in, in the country, are, or the top 10% rather, are earning substantially more 
than the bottom 10%. I mean, I have some figures that I mentioned in the piece that the top 10% of income in 1980 uh, earned three times as much as the bottom 10%. And by 2008, so almost 30 years later, they earned 3.6 times as much. Now, if you look at the very top 1% or the top 5%, those multiples become still much more dramatic. And this is something that people are, are very, very much aware of. And it's something you can see in the streets, in the advertising. You can see it when you walk around places like London and also financial centers elsewhere in the country, such as Leeds, that, that there is a level of wealth and consumption that most of the population is never going to be able to dream of. And, and that sort of physical apparentness of, of mm. the disparities in the country is something that, that will also help propel uh, opposition. Now, the purpose of your article is to really look at the response to these proposed cuts in terms of the population's reaction and tendency to, to organize and to, to, to rebel against them. And you say that to, to find a level of protest similar, we really have to go back to the mid-80s, the time of Margaret Thatcher and the miners' strike. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right, actually, that basically the, the last sort of 20 years in the UK have seen popular protest quite effectively disarmed. Um, I mean, in the 70s, the time that, that uh, people of an older generation than me would recall would be uh, the winter of discontent when there was mm. a series of strikes and a great deal of industrial unrest. And then in the 1980s, there was the miners' strike, a very long uh, miners' strike, which Margaret Thatcher crushed with the use of uh, the police, effectively. Mm. Uh, and that since then, since the 1980s, um, Labour has as in labor organizations have been very uh, much defanged, you could say. With the arrival of, a, of a, the new labor government in 1997, there was actually an explicit pact with the unions called the Warwick Agreement. Mm. Um, and that supposedly was, was meant to say that the government would protect the interests of labor to a certain extent while the unions agreed not to take industrial action. Over the 13 years of new labor rule, I would say that the unions got very little out of that. But on the other hand, it was very effective in, in preventing industrial action, and the number of strikes dropped quite dramatically mm. from the 80s through into the 90s and in the 2000s. So mm. that by the time you get to, to the present, there's really been very little by way of, of organized strikes. There have been some exceptions, of course. There was a notable strike by the fire brigades uh, union some years ago, and obviously occasional strikes by civil servants and teachers, but, but nothing quite as widespread as what we're witnessing now. The other key point to add is that it's it's not just the labor unions that are spearheading the resistance. Actually, what you're seeing is an unusual, I think, historical phenomenon mm. where you have a, a range of groups from across society who have no previous political affiliation or no notable affiliation to, to the labor unions, but coming together in a sort of uprising of civil society. And what you could uh, arguably see uh, the current wave of resistance as, as a a form of society defending itself mm. against the government. And the government has sort of said that, you know, it wants society to step in and take the place of the state sector in, in a lot of these reforms. But actually, much of society sees what's happening as an assault on society itself. Mm. Um, and, and people think that we need to defend whatever remains of the welfare state against this austerity agenda. I mean, you quote the remark of the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, we're all in this together. I guess that's, that's a remark which is not widely believed, it would be fair to say, in the country. And I wondered how much you thought resistance was shaped by the fact that the government is now a conservative uh, liberal coalition rather than the Labour Party, which we, we know would also have had to implement cuts, albeit perhaps in a different way and a, a different speed. But how much do you think it's being shaped by 
by the, 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 the predominantly conservative government that, that the UK now has. Yeah, I think this is a very important factor, actually. I mean, Gordon Brown's uh, last budget before he, uh, he lost uh, the election of 2010 actually foresaw cuts uh, of something like 50 billion, 50 billion compared with 80 billion. It, it is substantially smaller, but on the other hand, 50 billion of cuts is still a very, very large amount. Mm. The fact that it's now a, a conservative Lib Dem government is, is very important for a variety of reasons. One is that, first of all, the labor unions, which I mentioned earlier, had a, a pact or some sort of agreement with the previous Blair and Brown governments. Those uh, unions now don't see themselves as being politically bound by any form of, of compact with, with the government. Mm. And so they're now free to oppose whatever the government agenda is, is, is putting forward. So that's freed up their hands. Secondly, in popular opinion, I think, for a long time, the Conservatives have been seen as sort of a quite traditional sort of atavistic party that's, that's bent on defending the interests of the privileged. And they've had a very, very difficult time attempting to shed that image over recent years. David Cameron has made efforts hiring various PR companies to cultivate a sort of more caring, sharing, uh, even eco ecologically friendly image. Mm. I mean, there was a change a few years ago with the Conservative Party changed its logo from a hand bearing a torch to a sort of scribbled tree mm. diagram. But what you're seeing now, the level of resistance and the level of hostility to the government agenda is a sign that none of this uh, rebranding has actually worked. Mm. And people, are, as the popular perception is very clear that the Tory party is still what it has always been, a historical party of, of the elite. Mm. And actually, if you want a sort of clear condensation of that fact, the, the present cabinet out of 29 members, 18 of them are millionaires. So, Tony, what forms do you see discontent being expressed in, in, in Britain today? This is another very, very interesting phenomenon and very encouraging in its way that, that it's taking a variety of forms. I mean, some of it is, is uh, taking the form of national demonstrations. We had that on the 26th of March, uh, a very large demonstration in London put on by the trades unions, but as well as a, a number of different associations uh, against the cuts. And that attracted something like half a million people out on the streets of London. Mm. So there are those sort of more conventional demonstration type um, events. Um, but then there are also a lot of um, spontaneous protests and a lot of uh, organized protests that take the form of street theater. There's some very inventive protests happened on the 28th of May, organized by this group UK Uncut, where protesters dressed in, in medical garb and uh, protested outside the banks to say that we should not be making cuts to the National Health Service in order to pay for the bailouts of the banking system. And these were sort of very inventive uh, displays of, of, of dissent. And there's, there's a large element of street theatre, as I said. And these can be very effective in attracting people's attention, but also they, um, they have a good... They have, they have a good tone that, that, that the public can, can sympathize mm. with. Um, they're not uh, aggressive, they're not sort of confrontational, but they are assertively making their point and making it very effectively with the sort of weapons of satire rather than of, mm. of, of anger. Mm. And uh, that's the, another form of, of, of dissent that, that's taking place. Mm. The other form, of course, that's very important, lastly, is um, the student demonstrations that began in, in late last year in the autumn involved a lot of occupations of campuses and, mm. and this form of direct action is something that we're seeing a lot more of at the same time. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the generational aspect of protest because I guess you could say that a generation of students is really coming to, to political consciousness after a fairly quiet time for, for student protests during the, the labor years, apart from the war in Iraq, of course. Yes, I think that's very true that there is a whole, a whole new generation which which doesn't have the same background and hasn't been shaped by the same experiences as the preceding ones. 
I mean, it's very noticeable that, I mean, I myself was a student in the 1990s uh, when tuition fees were introduced by the Labour government in 1998. And the level of protest at that point was very, very low. The level mm. of activism com certainly compared to now is much lower. I think there's a, a number of different things have, have changed in the interim. One, of course, is the war on terror. Uh, and the wars, the, the invasions and occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq, which have brought a lot more people onto the mm. streets than, than was common before. And I think a lot of students, people who are coming to political consciousness, as it were, sort of teenagers, school children, would have, would have seen these things happening. Um, and they've been living effectively in a much more politically charged environment than their mm. predecessors. So they have a sort of more direct experience of protest, of, of opposition to government than, than the preceding generation, I would say. Um, and that's, that's been very important. The other point I think that, that's relevant in the background, um, perhaps less important than the anti-war demonstrations, but nonetheless significant, is the rise of anti-globalization movements uh, mm. since, I would say, roughly 1999 with the, the demonstrations in Seattle. But since then, you've had every year slightly larger demonstrations on May Day uh, in London, for example, and also protested events such as the G8 meetings. Uh, and this has, again, formed part of a, a sort of more politicized, more, more charged atmosphere that, that younger people have grown up in and, and come to awareness of their world uh, within. So I think those combinations of factors have, have, have created the conditions for, for a much more activist uh, generation um, to, to come to the fore now. The final thing I wanted to ask you, Tony, you, you write about... 2011 being a potentially a year of awakening in the UK. So I guess the, the big question is the extent to which protest becomes organized versus remaining somewhat fragmented and local and, and single issue based. So do you see signs of, of, of potential widespread organization on the horizon? I think there are the makings of it. I think that there is always a difficulty um, I mean, one thing that's very important at the moment is that the, the government has devolved responsibility for a lot of the cuts to local councils. So where, where the cuts are being felt most is at the local level. Uh, and it's very difficult to translate uh, something at sort of municipal level into a sort of national protest or at least to put them together. And I think that there need to be ways of putting together those, those fragments. Um, but I think there are possibilities for that. It depends largely on the issues that are the focus of protest. I mean, one such issue would be um, the National Health Service, which of course is, is precisely an, a national institution that um, everyone across the country uses and benefits from and, and will miss uh, when, when it's gone, mm. or rather will, will, will very much feel the impact of any reduction in its, in its quality and extent. Mm. And I think there are a number of different sort of issues like that that could serve to connect the different local levels of protest into a national question. The problem as ever is one of, of, of who exactly is going to be that coordinating agency mm. and, and, or if they can come together in a protest, whether that can translate into a sort of programmatic agenda. Tony Wood. You can read his article, Britain's Freelance Protesters, in the June issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. Do also visit the website at mondediplo.com. There, subscribers can read the current issue of the paper and access a complete archive as well as explore the Diplomatic Channel section, which offers articles, blogs, maps, images, and a podcast archive. I hope you'll join me again next month for another in-depth interview with one of our contributors. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.